That was beautiful. And it was so great to see so many people in the choir again, wasn't it? It was just great. I'm going to read some from Psalm. You may sit down. <laughs> Psalm 121. I raise my eyes towards the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. God won't let your foot slip. Your protector won't fall asleep on the job. No, Israel's protector never sleeps or rests. The Lord is your protector. The Lord is your shade right beside you. The sun won't strike you during the day. Neither will the moon at night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. God will protect your very life. The Lord will protect you on your journey, whether going or coming, from now until forever from now. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to be with you this morning. And uh, as I look down, not only are you good looking, but you're wonderful people. And I am blessed all these years to be part of this wonderful church family. So I'm asking you to, uh, this is the first edition, by the way, of this presentation. Uh, things that I have never made public and things that I have <clears throat> never shared too much with other people. Um, I want to share a part of my life, of a journey that I took from the years about 1957. Now, to the young folk, that sounds like ancient history, um, but I was still there. To 19, about 1975. And I hope you will join me in this journey and sit back and relax as we worship God together. The psalm that we just, that Jean just read for us is one of the psalms that kept me going through the years of my life that I memorized and took it as great comfort uh, many times during the day. I want to talk to you about a topic that I called imprisonment, to be in prison. When you're imprisoned, you are limited. You're in an area of a hot, almost like a hostage. You're confined. And very often, we don't have to be in a cell behind bars. But within ourselves, we can be imprisoned by what we face. So I call this period of time from 1957 to 1975 my time of imprisonment. Uh, before I begin, however, I want to uh, hope you remember that psalm that was just read. But I want to read from Isaiah 41, verse 10, which again is something else that gives us much comfort. And this is what God says. Don't fear, because I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will hold you with my righteous, strong hand. Words for all of us today, not just during Isaiah's time, but words down through the centuries that have held Christians together as they worship their God. I am going to take you on a journey, and I hope that you will find some humor, because God was very good to me, gave me all kinds of things, and what is my sense of humor? So I'll try and share some of that. Back in 1957 era, I had completed my college and was, had already started my teaching profession. My church, by the way, I was Presbyterian before this, so thank you for allowing me to enter the Reformed Church area. 
Um, so the church was a major part of my life, not only spiritually, but socially. And I had many wonderful youth groups, meetings, and, but however, during this time, our church was without a pastor. And you know what that is like. So someone had a great idea to call Bloomfield College and Seminary, right here in Bloomfield, New Jersey, which was a Presbyterian basic seminary, to find some pulpit people to preach. And they did send this young man named David, not David Bach, because he wasn't even born yet. <laughs> and he was a, a marvelous preacher, and he came several times, and the congregation felt that here was a man from God that they, we, we could really need as our pastor. So after his seminary training, he accepted a call to our church. Now, I was always very... Uh, singing went well in the church because I was so busy teaching Sunday school, singing in choir, and many other activities. So as time went by, uh, much to the dismay of many, but happiness of many, we became engaged. And we thought, well, this is great because church was a major part of my life. Uh, so we engaged, and then we planned our wedding. Well, as we were planning the wedding, the gentleman who was going to marry us who was president then of the seminary, called me into his office, or came to see me. And these are the things he said. And I should have known better when he said these things, maybe just to run, but I didn't. Okay. He said, number one, now, Grace, he said, do you think this marriage was made in heaven? I didn't know. Didn't think of it that way. Maybe after all this is over, you can tell me whether it was made in heaven or not. And he said also, he said, most ministers' wives, all ministers' wives in those days, never had an occupation or profession outside of the church. So you're going to have to really give up your teaching career because society says a minister's wife belongs in the home, caring for the pastor, making his life comfortable. Okay, that sounded. Also, he said... You can't question your husband a lot about where he's going or what he's doing. Most of it is confidential. That made common sense. Then he continued to give me a list of the things I should do and the things I shouldn't do. Well, okay. So we were married, and the church really grew. David was a magnificent preacher. His prayers were one to soothe you and to help you through life. And he was loved by everyone. In fact, the older ladies, which I'm one now so I can say this, the older ladies would call him the dear boy. <laughs> All of a sudden, I was so busy, I didn't have time to catch my breath between taking care of the house. And that's another thing. Some of you are Dutch, right? Here, okay, you know that with the Dutch, they take very seriously cleanliness is next to godliness. So they expected the inside of my home as well as the outside to clean all the time. And the secret is you make your house smile. How do you do that, ladies? You wash your windows and put nice, crisp, white curtains on the windows. Expected. So I followed through. Well, an old house, and before the time of window replacement, the windows were very difficult in an old house. So across the front of the top was the bedroom windows. And I looked down, and my goodness, right below, not too far, was the roof of the, of the porch. I thought, I'll just climb out and wash the windows on the outside. 
And I thought that was brilliant, so I did that. Now remember, first of all, I wasn't allowed to wear slacks or pants. So I was always in a dress and dressed properly. That was expected then. So see how life has changed. So I did that a few times, but unfortunately, across the street and the second fa two family house was Tilly. Now Tilly had ill health, so she spent her whole life peeking out of the curtains, looking to see what was going on. And also on the telephone. Well, it wasn't long before the word spread that I did a should not. I climbed unladylike out of the window onto the roof and washed the windows. That was the end of my career of washing windows on the roof. <laughs> Things went very well. It w I enjoyed my time, but David had an open door policy to our home, so I never knew what to expect. And I was always had to make sure my house was in pristine condition because I never know who was coming. He was full of surprises. First of all, he wasn't home that much. He was out doing the Lord's work. One day he called me and said, my friend John can't afford to stay in seminary and have room and board, so he's going to come and live with us for a while. Oh, okay. So John Salmon came. Uh, never asked me, was this all right, or discussed with me, and that was the pattern of life. He made decisions, made plans, and then I was to carry them out with no questions asked. John was a, a black man. The voice of an angel, the intelligence of whatever, a dedication to God. And in that year and a half that he lived with us, I saw more of John than I did of David. And we had excellent conversations about race and how he felt about it. And I always wished that John was around more now today because he would have been a great help to help us and to help the blacks and the whites heal their wounds. He was that kind of man. He was loved by all. Then we were there about five years, and things went very well. The church prospered. And, of course, everyone thought, first of all, that I was the lucky one. They said, you're such a blessing. You married such a wonderful man, the dear boy. Okay. So uh, he then informed me that he received a call from Bloomfield College and Seminary to become dean of students. So we packed up and left and went to Bloomfield. We weren't there too long when once again the same pattern. He was gone most of the time. He was preaching in churches on Sunday. He was moderator of churches when they didn't have a pastor. And plus, he brought all kinds of people home for me to entertain. It was during this first five years of this that he decided many things without asking or discussion. One was he felt, now we should adopt because we need to have a family. Well, we won't go into all the reasons why. But before I knew it, he had already started the procedure, and I was there to accept it. Well, I was somewhat frightened, but I continued with my activities, and my first child arrived when where I, now you know where you were when your first child arrived. I was in Puerto Rico. I was in Puerto Rico being a chaperone for the Boom Hill College Choir. And when I came home to find out that I had a son, so we went to pick up this little baby, and uh, I looked at him. They brought him out to me. He was only six weeks old, and he had great big scratches because no one had cut his nails. 
His, the suit was too big and I immediately fell in love because my theory has always been every child born deserves a mother and a good home. So I fell in love with my son, Mark, and he was such a joy that in a small while, we adopted Pam. And when they brought her to me, she was the most beautiful baby I'd ever seen. And after Pam, we adopted Tim. Now, my children are very precious to me. They are the greatest blessings that God ever gave me. And I worked hard to be a good mom. In the meantime, David was not home that much. And I began to have some strange feelings about what he was doing and what was going on. But he always had an answer. And if I had um, a, a situation that I wasn't sure of, I really had to make an appointment to see him. And usually that appointment was very swift and over with because God gave him so many wonderful gifts. And was he using them in the right way? God gave him the gift of speaking, of counseling, of helping others, of being able to talk you out of a situation and in the end make you feel in the end that it's your fault, not his. So the, I'll just give you two examples. One was I went shopping and now he was very uh, held on to the purse strings. I had no money of my own. I went shopping to buy clothes for my children and the manager came down and said, I'm sorry, you can't take these clothes. You haven't paid your bill in months. We send you notices, and no one's responded. Of course, I was humiliated and went home, and I addressed the situation. And in the end, he had this wonderful explanation of why this happened. And I felt, well, this is my fault. Then, another time, as things went on and he was never home, he never was a hands-on father, I started, again, through prayer. Now, I was always a yes mother, yes grandma girl, and I did everything to please people. Well, after praying a lot with God, he started to give me real strength and the courage to look in deeper as to what was going on in my life. And the most startling was, was I started to investigate. And one day, which is a no-no, I went into his office when he was gone and went through his desk. What did I find? I found a large bunch of notes, thank you notes, to our congregation, to our friends and family, thanking them for the sympathy extended on the death of his wife, Grace. So, needless to say, I was upset. <laughs> and, I prayed a lot about this, what should I do? And when I went home, of course, he had another long story, and he agreed to go for counseling. And I made the appointment, and down the road to find out that he went to the first one, and they set up appointments that he never went back. And months went on when he would say, I'm going for my appointment. He never went. Well... At this time, he also decided that we needed to have a house at the shore. So he bought a house at the shore. Now, the children and I loved it. We had a great time. But he would take us down at the beginning of the summer and kind of deposit us down there, then go back home to Bloomfield to do his work of the Lord. 
and bring down, usually on weekends when he arrived, company to entertain. Uh, he kept me quite busy all the time. But the children and I enjoy our time there. Now, he stayed in Bloomfield College for several years and was always busy, uh, was always preaching. And there, all the ladies in the um, auxiliary of the college, they also thought he was a dear boy. And they thought I was never without people saying to me, you are so well blessed, you are so fortunate to be married to a man like this. He is so organized and he's such a good preacher and he's such a kind man. Well, have you ever heard the expression robbing Peter to pay Paul? Well, that's what he was doing. Then he decided, he told me when, uh, as he came home one day and said, uh, I was at the shore, he called and said, I feel that uh, my time at the college is over and I'm going to leave and we have, to, we have a certain date to move out of the college house. So he said, but don't you worry, I'll find us a house to live in. Well, when I came back from the shore to pack up and saw the house he got, I was expecting a little nice comfy house. He picks out the big, one of the biggest homes in Glen Ridge, a very affluent area, and we rented this. And I thought, where is this money coming from? He always had something going on. Uh, it was during the Cuban crisis, a fund to help the, the Cuban students, a fund to help Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania when the Susquehanna River overflowed. There's always something going on. And again, I wasn't to question. I was to do as I was told. And I was still thinking about the should and the should nots. Well, as he continued to preach and continued not to be present at home that much. Again, he was not one to be with the children. So the children really became not our children, but my children. And they're the ones that saved me through it all. I tried to make their life happy and adventurous and filled them with love because they were loved by many people. David would have me entertain, but always sent someone to help me. The college students, he hired people, but he himself never took part. Now, through this, my prayer life became very strong. And, you know, sometimes in the beginning, what we Christians do is we pray to God and say, you know, help me, help me. And then we go on our way, but we take it back and don't give God a chance to really help us and listen. And one thing I learned was to pray and to still and to know that he is God. And I so strongly felt during these next several years, God was walking right with me, right here. Because I had strength I never knew I had. I had creativity that became a gift as to how to help and love my children. I had the strength each morning to get up out of bed and make a happy home for them. Then all of a sudden, he's preaching again in the church, and they call him, of all things, to be their pastor. A wonderful church filled with God-loving people, kind and good, provided us with a beautiful home. And it was only about two years there when things, his kingdom, started to fall apart. He received a call from Presbytery, and we were to go to this meeting of Presbytery and to find out that they had a lot of information, a lot of things 
that he had been doing through the years that were illegal and not true and good. And there he had a trial and was defrocked or lost his ordination as a minister. We had to get out of the house immediately. When it was time to pack up, David was nowhere to be seen. That was up to me and to any people I could find to help. Then we had no home, and I had no money. I had no job. I had three children. What does one do? So he calls an uncle who was well-to-do in Pennsylvania, and we get all shipped up to Harvey's Lake outside of Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania. And once again, he disappears, comes down to New Jersey supposedly to a, a, a professorship that he had in a college. I was left up there in the lake with no car, and I started to substitute, teach to bring some money, and I had to ride the school bus every day with the children because I didn't have a car. Well, my children loved that place, and it was beautiful, but again, I was isolated from people. Now, when David would come home, he always had a briefcase, and it would never left his side, so I th and he, it was always locked. Well, one night I thought, you know, enough of this nonsense. So I sat up until about 5 o'clock in the morning into every kind of combination I could figure out. And goodness, the Lord opened that briefcase for me. <laughs> and what I found in there is too extensive to go into. But it would make your hair stand on and, and wonder what was going on. Um, then... As I'm dealing with all of this and trying to decide what to do, because number one, the word divorce was never mentioned. You don't divorce a man of God, ever. And I knew, we have, I knew of no one in my, other, my church or my family who was ever divorced. So what was I to do? Well, I'm still at Harvey's Lake until all of a sudden the septic tank gives out. And guess who had the shovel? Because David wasn't around. And the house was declared unfit for us to live in. Where do you go when you don't have any money? And where do you go when you don't know where David is most of the time? So I called dear dad. And dear dad sent me, I found an old car, $800. And he sent that to me and I had the car. And then he sent few people to help move me back. My mother-in-law wanted me to stay in Wilkesboro and live there. No way. No way. So I prayed again to God. And I would, my verses there were, he said to me, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. Or, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God did that, and he walked with me and talked with me as following the hymn that Robin had us sing. He walked with me, and he, to and he told me, you are mine. So I moved and called Dad, and we moved back home to New Jersey, and I had to go back up to Wilkesboro once, and I took the children to see their grand grandmother and their great-grandmother, and who comes in the door but his majesty, David. And he was in a terrible mental state 
and his mother didn't know what to do with him. So I made all the phone calls and found the only place I could put him was in the psychiatric ward in St. Joseph's Hospital in Patterson. So I bundled the children and David in the car and drove immediately to St. Joseph's Hospital and said to him, this is where you're going to be and don't come back out because I'll be gone and you sign yourself in. So he signed himself in. In the meantime, I started to make phone calls to find out that all the things that he had done wrong, that he was really fired from Bloomfield College because of all the illegal things he had been doing. And they didn't want to press charges, so they never took it to court. They didn't want to be embarrassed. They just thought, fire him and get rid of him. The same thing for his professorship. I called Fairleigh Dickinson, same thing. So I found out so much that I never knew from being the should and the should nots and being the person who was so well blessed to have this man as a husband. Um, and the other thing that gave me great comfort, you know, most of you know me, that I love the old hymns. And when hymn that I spoke to me every day and I sang in my heart before I go to sleep was, what a friend we have in Jesus. Uh, David then was an organizer and Ken had that gift of gab, and before you know it, I got a call. They said, nothing's wrong with him. In fact, he's trying to reorganize our whole psychiatric ward. <laughs> so it's time for him to go. Well, I, didn't, I, I certainly didn't want him. So he goes into New York City and the Marble Collegiate Church, and there he gets in somehow, and he starts to write some devotionals for them. Well, down the road, there became finally, I went to a lawyer, and I think I got the fastest uh, divorce in, in all of New Jersey's history within four months. My lawyer was so upset about what we'd been through, the children and I, that he pushed it through. At my hearing was the uh, internal revenue to find out that he'd been watching his taxes for years, and they were all fabricated. And so he was there to collect his money. Well, we could prove that my signature was a forge, so of course I was not responsible. He went to great lengths, even when I questioned money. He said, I'll have a report for you anytime now. And he came in with this bound onion skin paper report, and our finances looked great. In fact, I think I was pretty rich, but it was all fabricated. None of it was true. So I came and the children and I, uh, he did go to a civil trial and I was never contacted. He was in a correctional institution for about a year because the judge felt that poor David was, was um, punished enough because he lost his family and his position. I again came and to live at home with my dad and I'll never forget when we got out of the car, my son Mark leaned down and kissed the ground. He was so glad to be back in New Jersey where family was. God's been very good to me. He has given me the strength and the insight. You know, sometimes we Christians want pray and think that God wants, wants just, we're going to pluck us out and make things right. Not so. God walks with you to help you through your time of, of being imprisoned 
to give you strength, to give you courage, and to help you grow. And as long as I knew that God was there with me and my prayers, my faith was never as strong as it was during that time. I never felt that God did this to me. He did not. There's the human element there. We bring it on ourselves very often. Once we bring it on ourselves, he's there to guide us and to give us help. And I pray the same for all of you. I imagine all of you in some form have been imprisoned, whether it's socially, you're in a situation that you're not sure of, you shouldn't be there, a job or a profession, um, substance abuse. Some imprisonments are short and some are longer. Mine happen to be longer. But God is gracious and God is good and God is always there. And I thank you for this time and I hope with a little jazz that I went over with Greg that you will join me in singing my most favorite hymn that speaks to me and I hope speaks to you is what a friend we have in Jesus. God bless each one of you. Hi, I'm Jeff. Um, morning. 
Um, in the, pardon me? No, listen, I, um, I just conferenced with our VP of Consistory and uh, we're in agreement that I think we've heard the things we need to hear today. And uh, thank you, Robin, and thank you, Grace, for what you shared. And I'm just brought back to what we, uh, what we sang earlier. He walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share that we carry there, none other has ever known. We have a great king, and we are citizens of a kingdom that is not of this earth. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> it's been a long year. It's been a long year for a lot of us. Can we together share the Apostles' Creed? Please rise. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen.